football show on the Grueling Truth Sports Network. The NFL show is brought to you by PathImpurity.direct, the highest quality CBD out there. It's a tablet you put under your tongue, dissolves in about two or three minutes, goes directly into your bloodstream and then time releases over the next 12 hours. Make sure you check out PathImpurity.direct right now because you can get a two-month supply for the price of one. I am your host for the NFL show, Mike Goodpaster. Right now, I want to welcome in my co-host, Sam Teets. How you doing, Sam? I'm doing great, Mike. It's good to be back. Yeah, but the only NFL news right now is Pac-Man Jones got arrested, but he's not even in the NFL, so that doesn't matter. Yeah, we don't have very much to go on right now. Maybe we could have Pac-Man on the show. He could explain to us why he was arrested. Hey, you know what? I think that would do pretty well, actually. I know Pac-Man. We could try it. You want to? Hey, why not? All right. All right. But today, we're going to talk about the top 10 undrafted players, undrafted rookies in NFL history. And when we look at this list, when I started looking at who would be in mine, there's a lot of guys here that were absolute studs that were undrafted. Wait, I've got about maybe 15, 20 names here I'm looking at right now. I'm kind of throwing this together a little bit on the fly. So if I miss a guy, that's my excuse for the day. But uh, there are about, I think, 20, maybe 25 guys here who are close to Hall of Fame level players who are undrafted. Yeah, I mean, you guys got – didn't make my list. Guys like Jeff Garcia, Wayne Krebet, Donnie Shell, the old great Pittsburgh Steeler, Tony Romo, Larry Little, who was just outside of my top ten, Jeff Saturday, Rod Smith, London Fletcher, Priest Holmes. I mean, the, the list goes on and on with these guys. And the thing that's surprising when you look at it you would think before, well, maybe there was a lot of these guys from the 1950s, which there are, or the 60s, which there are. But there's a lot of guys even from the last 20, 25 years here. Yeah, I think the, top, I think the three guys, 10 through 8 on my list, are pretty much from the last 30 years or so. So I've got some, I've got some more modern guys at the very back end of my list, then we get into some more of the older players towards the top. All right, so let's start off with your number 10. My number 10, I'm sure you're probably not going to agree with this, but my number 10 is Antonio Gates. And looking at what Antonio Gates did when he came to the NFL, obviously. Why what? did I not agree with that? He's probably one of the five greatest tight ends that ever played a game. I, I just don't know what you like sometimes. I don't really know. <laughs> sometimes I bring up is it players because, playing. Is it because he doesn't have any gray hair yet? <laughs> I don't think he has any hair to begin with right now. I'm pretty sure he's bald. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right. But no, just coming out of Kent State and just the first, I don't say 10 years of his career. So even towards the back end, he was still a productive player. 955 career receptions. I mean, this guy, like you said, is one probably the five best tight ends of all time. And what he was able to do with a basketball background coming into the NFL being undrafted is pretty incredible. Yeah, I've actually got him much higher than that. Um, just because really? he's one of the top five tight ends that ever played the game. How the hell are you going to rank him at number 10, Sam? That's crazy. I got a lot of players to like on this. Like I said, I'm throwing this list together right now, and there's a lot of guys I really like here. I did too. My number 10 is Marion Motley. Marion Motley played at the University of Nevada. Um, he actually got a tryout. I, I wrote an article about him, so I got to remember the article. But I think he got a tryout in 1946. He requested a tryout, got the tryout, made the team, and 22 years later is in the Hall of Fame. He was just the second African-American player to make it in the Hall of Fame, and Motley had 828 career carries for 4,700 yards, 5,800 total yards from scrimmage, and he's nine years in the league. He led the league in rushing in 1950 with 810 yards. May not sound like much, but you also got to remember that was just a 12-game season, 
and that led to a Pro Bowl appearance. He was named to the 75th anniversary's all-time team in 1994. And I think when people talk about the greatest running backs of all time, Marion Motley is a guy who really gets overlooked, Sam. And they don't really mention him a lot. He's a guy who I'm, I'm going to leave probably just off my list here. There are a lot of players from that era, like we talked about, who came in and made a big impact on the NFL. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Wasn't wasn't Bill Willis also a player who was on draft who came in as in the Hall of Fame? And didn't he play for Cleveland the same time as Mary Motley? He was right around the same time. I know he was there during I don't know if it was the entire time. I think Willis might have been a little bit after. But I think he still – if you know what I mean, I think his career went a little bit yeah, longer. Yeah. But, I mean, if you look at the Browns back then and the running backs they had, from Marion Motley to Bill Wills, then you go to Jim Brown, and then who, who was the guy in the mid to late 60s? Leroy Kelly. I mean, the yeah, Cleveland, there you go. Leroy Kelly. Yeah. The Cleveland Browns had some great running backs, but Bill Wills was definitely one of them. Also, my number nine is a guy who came from Compton Community College running back Joe Perry. He was an undrafted free agent who joined the 49ers in 1948. He played until 1961 and he played for two years with the Colts before retiring or returning to the Niners for one final year in 1963. Perry led the league in rushing yards, carries and yards from scrimmage in 53-54, rushing yards in 49, rushing yards per game in 49-53 and 54. He led the league in touchdowns in 49-53-54. Three pretty good years there. He had 1,929 career rushes for 9,723 yards and 71 touchdowns. That's what, eight yards per carry? That's not too bad for a career. And he also had 11,744 career yards from scrimmage, 83 combined touchdowns. He was the first player to rush for 1,000 or more yards in back-to-back -back seasons. And remember, 1,000 yards back then, 12 games is almost 100 yards a game. Um, he, was a pair, he was a pro bowler three times, first-team all-pro a couple times, was named to the NFL's 1950s all-decade team, as well as the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I think Joe Perry gets even less love than Marianne Motley does when people talk about all-time great running backs. Yeah, and you wonder why. At least said he's got three rushing titles. He's led the NFL in rushing touchdowns three times. And maybe it's just that era of running backs. Maybe people really don't – people who don't know the game specifically, people who don't know all the history of the game, kind of just go with Jim Brown and immediately wipe out the entire era before him and during him just label it as the Jim Brown era. But Joe Perry, I mean, there are a ton of running backs from that era just get forgotten for some reason. He had – like you said, almost 10,000 career rushing yards in 16 seasons. That, that's kind of longevity and production you don't really see from that era. You just don't expect from that era. So I am surprised that guys like Joe Perry just get forgotten about, surprisingly, especially in this yeah. era of football. Yeah, and it's just like today when somebody has a 1,000-yard season, everybody makes a big deal about it. But in 16 games, a 1,000 yards is really not that spectacular. No, it's much easier to do now. And you think about guys like guys doing it back then. The game was so different, but it was so much shorter. I mean, 12-game seasons, you have to respect what they've done. For some reason, this air seems to have gotten away from remembering those guys. All right. Who do you got at number nine, Sam? Number nine, this guy might not be on your list, but I put Sam Mills at number nine. And we've talked about Sam Mills a little bit in the past. I don't know if you – I understand putting him maybe at number nine, this list is probably a little bit of a reach. But we've talked about him being a Hall of Fame caliber linebacker in the past and the versatility he brought – to the Saints and the Dome Troll and all those kind of teams. So I think Sam Mills, maybe maybe nine's a little bit of a reach, but Sam Mills is a Hall of Fame caliber player who was a significant undrafted player in the NFL's history, and he did everything you could ask for from a linebacker. 
Yeah, and that Dome Patrol may have been the greatest collection of linebackers. I mean, Pat Swilling's a guy people forget. Pat Swilling was LT-esque. I mean, you had Vaughn Johnson. I mean, it was a great was linebacker Jackson core. Ricky, Ricky Jackson. I mean, those guys. I mean, people forget until you got to Dome Patrol. The New Orleans Saints spent the first 21 years of their existence never making the playoffs, never having a winning record. I think the closest they got to it was 8-8 eight and eight in 1983, where – Basically, the Rams, I forget, Carney Lansford, I can't remember. Carney Lansford, I think, was the field goal kicker. Kicked the field goal in the Superdome, which kept the Saints from making the playoffs in 1983. That was about the only time they came close to the playoffs. Would have been 83 and 79. And I think I think it's 79, they ended up 7-9 or 8-8 eight and eight also. So until you got this core of linebackers, this team never made the playoffs. Once they get there, they made the playoffs in 87 they made the playoffs a few times in the early 90s, and I, I think they're guys that were really underrated. My number eight is James Harrison, Kent State University. He was a linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he was a free agent signing in 2002. He spent most of the early time on a practice squad. He was released and re-signed a couple times, and he really didn't take hold on a roster until 2004 when he was primarily a special teams player. Harris then became a pass-rushing force, to say the least, in Pittsburgh, notching, notching 64 career sacks, 617 tackles, along with 29 forced fumbles, five interceptions. Of course, you had the 100-yard interception return for a touchdown in Super Bowl, what was that, 42? Not 42, was it? 47? Well, I'll say it was – was that was 2008, I think? It was It was the game against uh, the Cardinals. How about that? Yeah, but, everyone knows what it was. Yeah, but Harrison was voted to the Pro Bowl five times, four times All-Pro, named the NFL Defensive Player of the Year in 2008, was the Steelers team MVP in 07-08, played for the Bengals a little while, went back to the Steelers, retired. To me, James Harrison may not be as good as some of the guys that are on this list, but from where he came from, Kent State, two years off and on practice squads, to turn out to be a perennial all-pro linebacker. And then on top of that, you know, we touched on the 100-yard interception return for the touchdown in the Super Bowl. I think it was and it was one of the greatest single plays in Super Bowl history. And when you look at that game, without that play, you know, the Cardinals probably win that Super Bowl. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, that, that is a huge momentum changer for everyone involved in that game. And it's probably one of the top five, not one of the top three most iconic plays in Super Bowl history. And it meant everything to Pittsburgh to have him on that defense, but that stretch between 2007 and maybe 2012, 2011, he was one of the best, one of the, the best outside linebackers in the NFL at the time because of everything he did. He'd get 100 tackles. He'd get you 10 to 15 sacks. He was a strip sack master. So James Harrison did a ton of stuff for Pittsburgh during those years, and he is just one of the most iconic Steelers legends is not going to be a Hall of Famer, obviously. He's not going to get to that point. But James Harrison meant so much to the organization to have that hard-nosed linebacker, which, of course, now that playing style. I, I remember him getting penalized. I want to say like a four consecutive weeks in a row for illegal hits or stuff like that. That kind of worked out some of those hits from the game. But he was one of those last guys from that era that was you're allowed to like hit guys and just blast them as much as you want to. It was a lot of fun to watch him play. All right. Who's your number eight? Yeah, my number eight is John Randall. I think we talked. We might have talked about him briefly because we were joking about the. You can put Tierra list of the top twelve. Hey, I've actually, I've actually yeah. got him. I got him higher on this list than I had him on the Vikings list. Oh, you do really? All right, so I got yeah. Jam Randall down here. 
at number eight. I'm, I could make it some controversy. There's some controversy. It could be a much higher on the thing, but he was one of the best pass rushing defensive tackles the league has ever seen. He came into Minnesota out of what Texas A&M, Texas A&M, uh, Kingsville is what it says here. And he ends up going on to be a Hall of Famer. He's a six-time first-team All-Pro, finishes his career with 137 and a half sacks from the interior, which is something that you barely see out of defensive tackles in the NFL's history. All right, my number seven is Lou Groza, kicker from Ohio State. Groza was invited to join the Browns as an undrafted free agent by team owner Paul Brown in 1950 or 45. I think Groza was still serving in, in World War II. He joined the Browns in 46 after conclusion of the war. And Groza's a kicking legend. He played for the Browns for the entirety of his 21-year career. He was the NFL scoring leader in 1957. And he is the Browns' all-time scoring leader, I think, still today with over 1,600 points. He reached the Pro Bowl nine times, a four-time first-team All-Pro, led the league in field goals, made five times, has an NCAA kicking award named for him, and of course it's called the Lou Groza Award, and he is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I think Lou Groza, I, mean, I thought about Adam Vinatieri, but who the hell wouldn't put Adam Vinatieri on this list? I'm going to put Lou Groza there. No, I mean, it definitely deserves it. And especially we're talking about guys who have kind of been overlooked or forgotten, which is basically what most undrafted free agents are. Little Groza definitely deserves to be mentioned on this list because they were winning a lot. That was the Browns team that won four NFL championships and four AAFC championships as well. So having him on that team when he was leading the NFL in field goals attempts and field goals made basically every other year, that adds a lot to the a lot to the organization. Did he play a little bit on the offensive line as well? Because he was fairly big for a kicker, I believe. I think he might have played a little bit there. Because you remember back then, I think the rosters were only 33 players. So that's how you got guys like Charlie Concrete Bednarik, who played both ways, played offensive guard, I think, and linebacker for the Philadelphia Eagles, won a world championship in 1960. He was the last two-way player. So I'm pretty sure Groza early in his career did. Where are we at on our list? Are we at number six or seven? Uh, we are at number seven for me. All right. I I'm going to go ahead. Have I done my seven? I don't think so. My seven is John Randall. I'll go ahead and give mine first that you've already given him. And he was a guy that was an undrafted free agent in 1990. And he played through the tw or 2000 season with the Minnesota Vikings. He spent three years with the Seahawks. And Randall started eight games in his second season, recorded nine and a half sacks, kind of took off from there, became a full-time starter in 1992, totaled 11 and a half sacks that season. His first in a string of eight consecutive seasons with double-digit sacks, which I think is still a record to this day for a D-lineman. And, you know, his 15 and a half sacks in 1997 was a league high. He has a career total of 137 and a half, the seventh most in NFL history. And Randall made the Pro Bowl seven times, was an All-Pro six times, is a member of the 1990s All-Decade team, and was selected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2010. So this is a guy that didn't have to wait real long to get in the Hall of Fame either, Sam. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is a streak, the eight consecutive 10-sack seasons for an interior defensive line. I'm pretty sure that is a, uh, still a current record. And it's not going to be broken anytime soon because even Aaron Donald had two years in his seven-year career so far where he has not reached 10 sacks. So it tells you just how good John Randall was to being out a guy in Aaron Donald who's a three-time defensive player of the year, possibly one of the three or four best interior defensive linemen of all time. Oh, yeah. By the way, that was my number six, I think, from looking at this. That's fine. Go ahead. Give us seven and six back to back. All right. So number seven, this might be a little reach, but this is a guy who I think has been overlooked a lot, and I don't mention him quite often, but Jim Langer from 
The Miami Dolphins was uh, center. They're obviously a star center for them when they won two Super Bowls. He's in the Hall of Fame, six-time Pro Bowl, three-time first-team All-Pro. And I feel like we have when we have conversations about the best centers of all time, it's always Mike Webster, Jim Otto, uh, Dwight Stevenson. But it's never Jim Langer. He never gets mentioned those kind of conversations. That's because he wasn't as good as those guys, though. <laughs> I, I, I believe you, but I still feel like this is someone who I think I wanted to include him on the list just because he got overlooked a lot, and just because I haven't heard the name in a while. I wanted just to bring it up. I want an well, excuse to bring him up. And it, let's put it like this. I think anybody who is a free agent that ends up on an all-decade team belongs on this list. So I'm not going to give you any crap about it because he's on the 1970s all-decade team, and he was a part of, you know, he won the Super Bowl, what, three? Was he on two Super Bowl champions, seven and eight? Two. And I think, yeah, and I think that he finished his career in Minnesota, didn't he? Yeah, for the final two years. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't have a problem with Jim Langer. Who you got at six? Six, I have Willie Wood, who obviously was on those some of those great uh, Green Bay Packers teams, five-time NFL champions, two-time Super Bowl champions, and also a member of the all, an all-decade team for the 1960s, five-time first-team All-Pro. He led the NFL in interceptions with nine, and that was a 14-game season in 1962. Finished his career with 48. So there, there are so many members from this from those Packers teams in the Hall of Fame. But Willie Woods, a guy who was very dominant on defense and also extreme help to them, to have someone like that, to have a ball hawk who was able to go out and get 48 interceptions in, well, I guess, maybe 10 seasons as a start, maybe 11 seasons as a start. Yeah, I would have put Willie Brown there before I would have Willie Wood. Well, here's Andy. I'm going to get to Willie Brown eventually. Okay. Okay. That's fine, then. Where am I at? Number five? I always forget where yeah. I'm at. My number five is Emlyn Tunnel, University of Iowa, defensive back, was an undrafted free agent acquisition in the New York Giants in 1948, where he played for 11 seasons before heading to the Green Bay Packers for three more years. Tunnel reached the Pro Bowl nine times in his career, was named an All-Pro eight times. He is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, a member of the 1950s All-Decade team. He has the second most career interceptions with 79, and... I think he had like over a thousand yards in return yardage with them. And I think the thing about tunnel, was he the guy, does he still have, didn't he have the rookie record or like 14 picks in his rookie season? Or am I thinking a night train? He, I think you're thinking a night train. Cause I think Emily tunnel had seven. I think, I, think I, night train. I get old folks mixed up. And night train, night train had 14. Okay. Well, it was night train then, but all right. Where are we at? You're number five. Yeah, my number five. My number five is actually going to be Emlyn Tunnel. I'm going to switch it up. I was going to put Willie Brown there, but I'll have Willie Brown a little bit higher. I'm going to put Emlyn Tunnel there because you already mentioned him, and I don't want to talk about him too much later. But he's got, like you said, 79 career interceptions in, what, 14 seasons, mostly with New York, last maybe three with Green Bay or so, four defensive touchdowns throughout his career. And remember, those were 12-game seasons, at least until the end. I think he had a 14-game season in his final year in Green Bay. But those were 12-game seasons to accumulate 79 picks during that time, and they weren't throwing the ball. 500 to 600 times a year, it, it makes a huge difference. And I think there's, there's, it's very interesting to find out that they have most of the interception leaders come from the earlier years of the game rather than the modern era. All right. Who you got at number four? Number four, I have Warren Moon. And I don't know if you're going to have him in your top 10 or not, but I think Warren Moon gets overlooked quite a bit. I don't think we had him when we talked about the top 10 quarterbacks of all time, which we did, I think, last summer. I'm pretty sure neither of us had Warren Moon on that list, but Warren Moon was a very accomplished quarterback. He obviously never won 
a Super Bowl or anything like that. But he was still a former offensive player of the year. And you you know him from his time playing up in Canada, I believe, and comes down and throws for almost 50,000 yards in the NFL. Yeah, I, I have him on this list. Where are we at? Am I number three or four? I think you're number four. My number four? All right. Um, I, I've got him on the list. I've got him slightly higher than you do. I've actually got him at three, so I'll talk about him in a second. And I'll kind of combine the two because yours, my number four is somebody you brought up earlier, Antonio Gates. Um, he joined the San Diego Chargers in 2003, and he chose football over basketball. Gates' time in San Diego started kind of average. In his 11 rookie starts, he had right around 400 receiving yards, 20, 24 receptions, two touchdowns. But to say his production increased dramatically in his second year is an understatement. 81 receptions, 964 yards. By the time you get done, he's an all eight-time pro bowler, five-time all-pro, who was named the NFL's 2000s all-decade team. He was also awarded the NFL's alumni tight end of the year award in 05. And this is a guy, like I said, if you're talking to greatest tight ends of all time, you're talking guys like Tony Gonzalez, Rob Gronkowski, Travis Kelsey, John Mackey, Mike Ditka, Antonio Gates. Those are the names that really pop into my head. So Antonio Gates for me is number four. My number three, since you gave your four is Warren Moon, my number three is Warren Moon. And he went undrafted in the NFL. I, I think the reason a lot of people don't really put a lot of credence on this, he was undrafted because of the color of his skin. Nothing else. I mean, he took Washington, who hadn't been to the Rose Bowl in decades. He took them, won the 1978 Rose Bowl, I think 27-20 or 28-21 over Michigan. And he spent six seasons with the Edmonton Eskimos. He led them to five straight Grey Cup championships, 78-82. to they were a dominant team, maybe the greatest dynasty in CFL history. He joined the Oilers in 1984. The Oilers were a mess in 1984 when he got there. And I, I think Hugh Campbell was the head coach. And the thing that's significant about that, that is one of the reasons Edmonton ended up getting Warren Moon. Hugh, Hugh Campbell was not a good coach in the NFL. He failed big time. Doesn't mean he was a bad coach. Houston was just a bad situation. If you remember, they blew up the Oilers after 1980. They fired Bum Phillips. Everybody started to get old on that team. So 81, they were bad. 82, they were terrible. 83, they were even worse than that. But Hugh Campbell was actually the coach of the Edmonton Eskimos, which is one of the drawing points that got Warren Moon to sign with Houston. Now, Houston, 84, still not very good. 85, not very good. 86, they started to get a little bit better. You get the 87, they make the playoffs. They lose to the Broncos. 88. They win a playoff game over Cleveland. They lose at Buffalo. 1989, 90. I mean, this is a team that becomes a perennial playoff team after they get Warren Moon. He moves on to the Minnesota Vikings in 94, the Seahawks in 97, uh, Chiefs for his final years in 1999. Uh, he's a dude that threw for almost 50,000 yards. It makes you wonder what those numbers would have been if he had the other six seasons. The, the problem with Warren Moon is, not a lot of success in the playoffs. That's why I've got him at number three instead of higher. I think Warren Moon was a great quarterback. But with him, it well, I don't think people overlooked Warren Moon. They just didn't like the color of his skin. This is 1978. If you remember 1974, 75, 76, James Harris was the starting quarterback for the LA Rams for a lot of that time. Took him to three straight NFC championship games. 
and they replaced him with Pat Hayden. And the only reason they replaced him is because James Harris was black. And I'm, you know, people talk about systemic racism today. This ain't shit compared to what everybody faced in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Even into the 80s, there were guys that didn't get a shot. And especially, I think Warren Moon was the last one that really stood out to me that didn't get a fair shake here. And Warren Moon was a guy that was a stud. He should have been the first player taken in the 1978 draft. Who had the first draft pick in 1978? I, I can find out. Give me one second. I was going to... Uh... Did he elevate the level of the Canadian League? Did he elevate like the, the hyper on the – oh, it was the 78 draft? That was actually Houston that took Earl Campbell. Okay, so this is the thing. I can understand taking Earl Campbell ahead of him. Yeah. But how about this? In 1978, if the Chiefs go ahead and take Warren Moon, you know, Art Still was a stud defensive end. But Warren Moon on that team, Chiefs team in 1978, you got to remember, 1981, the Chiefs were 9-7 and seven and just barely missed the playoffs. You know, he may make them a playoff team. And the thing is, you had Deron Cherry, Albert Lewis. They had a great defensive backfield. And the AFC wasn't real tough in the 1980s. Warren Moon being in Kansas City could have changed everything. And if you look at the teams, just go with the teams that picked in the top five. You know, I mean, he could have been a Jet. If you make him a Jet in 1978, he's on those great Jet teams that came up short in the wild card to the Bills in 81 and then lost in the AFC Championship game in 82. And even into the mid-80s, the Jets were a contender. So when you look at the teams that passed on this guy, it's kind of amazing to me that they would pass on Warren Moon because when you watch Warren Moon in that 78 Rose Bowl, I mean, the dude was a stud. <clears throat> so I think this was everybody dropping the ball. Well, and also like the, the Saints at the time, you just, I don't, I, you got there for a second, so I couldn't hear, but the Saints as well. The Saints were a team that in 78, they were 79, yeah, they were 8 this. and 8 the next year. Remember this though, the Saints in 78, 79 had Archie Manning. Archie Manning was a guy in 79 right. on a 7 and 9 team, I think was the offensive player of the year. So their problem was not quarterback, but the Jets in 78 would have been like Richard Todd, the Bills would have been Joe Ferguson. He wasn't bad. Um, the interesting to me would have been either the Green Bay Packers or the 49ers. Because how would that have changed? Yeah, number six, number seven. How does that change history if the 49ers select Warren Moon in 1978? Because then they never select Joe Montana in 1979. Yeah, you, you wonder what? how many Super Bowls would Warren Moon have won then if he Who gets knows? there? Yeah, because Diddy's with, he's with Bill Walsh. And you could say what you want. But I don't think Warren Moon was the guy that blew it in the playoffs. I think it was a guy that was undercoached in the playoffs. They make the playoffs with Jerry Glanville. Jerry Glanville was great at taking lesser talent, turning them into crazy guys that made the playoffs. But Jerry Glanville's not going to the Super Bowl. You know, and you look at all the coaches he had in Houston, Jack Pardee. I mean, come on, run the damn clock down and run the ball when you're up 35 to 3 against the Buffalo team with their backup quarterback. So I don't think you can blame it on Warren Moon for the way this turned out and not being able to win a Super Bowl. I think most of it was coaching. Well, the fact that he came into the NFL and was already 28 years old and was able to play and be a good quarterback until what? he was. I want to say his final years was really a start. He came in when he was 42 years old, but he made the Pro Bowl with three different teams, Houston, Minnesota, and Seattle, and was still a Pro Bowl at 41 years old. After entering the late 28, playing, like I said, winning all those great cups, up in Canada and coming down and being 
one of the best quarterbacks of his of the decade. And he basically his career spanned almost two full decades in the NFL. And that's unparalleled for most quarterbacks. All right. So where are we at on your number three? Uh, yeah, my number three is going to be Willie Brown. We talked about him a little bit earlier, kind of joked about it, but I think he was probably the more dominant of the Willies we've run up here with Willie Brown. The Oakland Raiders, Las Vegas Raiders there for a second. The Oakland Raiders starting off with the Denver Broncos and then going to Oakland out of Grambling State, nine-time Pro Bowler, five-time first-team All-Pro, won a Super Bowl, won an AFL championship, of course, Hall of Fame, All-Decade team, basically all the guys you brought up are, and finished his career with 54 interceptions. And a couple of defensive touchdowns. So I think Willie Brown, Willie Wood, both these guys, these probably are two of the maybe top 15, top 10 corners of all time. All right. Who you got at number two? Number two, I have Kurt Warner. Which I think some people will say, why isn't he crew number one? I'll tell you number one is in a minute, but I think we both know who number one is probably on my list. But Kurt Warner obviously comes out, has the Cinderella story, I guess is what everyone refers to it as. But in the first... Three years as a full-time star with the Rams. He's a great player. Pro Bowler every time. Two-time first Mel Brown. Two-time MVP during that span. They win a Super Bowl. Lose another one to the Patriots. And then drops off. Then comes back and w- goes to the Super Bowl with Arizona. Franchise up to that point, which you've talked about in the past, was one of the least least fortunate franchises in NFL history. I think they still are. <laughs> they just yeah, they haven't Warner. gotten out of that yet. They just had Kurt Warner a couple times. Um, Kurt Warner's my number two also. My number one to me is unquestioned, but number two, you talked about Kurt Warner, and he was initially drafted in 1994. I think Mark Brunel, was Brunel with the Packers then? I think he was. He was the backup to Brett Favre, so they had a couple good quarterbacks. He got released prior to the regular season. He joined the AFL's Iowa Barnstormers, where they won an arena bowl, I think, in 96 and 97, something like that, and he was actually coached by John Gregory, who, if you're a CFL fan, John Gregory led Saskatchewan to the 1989 Grey Cup Championship. But Gregory coached him there. And in 1998, the Rams signed Warner. He spent time in the NFL's Euro League, European League. I think he actually won the championship in the European League. And then he came back to the Rams to be the third-string quarterback. Now, Trent Green gets hurt and forces Warner into being a starter which led to the Rams reaching and winning the Super Bowl. The thing that's impressive about this is this. Kurt Warner goes from, you know, the the European League, NFL Europe, to winning a championship there to like eight, nine months later winning the Super Bowl. And this is a guy that was supposed to be the third-string quarterback. Trent Green goes down. Trent Green was considered a stud. He'd come off a few great years at Kansas City. Everybody thought Trent Green was the reason the Rams would have a shot to go to the Super Bowl. He goes down. Warner comes in, and it ends up being the NFL or the Super Bowl MVP. The Rams return to the Super Bowl the next year, <clears throat> but lost to the Patriots. And then, you know, you had a couple years where Warner was hurt. You remember Mark Bulger? Mark, Mark Bulger, all of a sudden, was supposed to be the future in St. Louis. And Warner ends up going to the Giants in 2004. And in 2004, I think he had the Giants at 5-5 five and five with a shot to possibly make the playoffs, and they benched him because they had Eli Manning. Eli loses the next six games. Looks like a bad move until Eli wins the Super Bowl a couple years later. Then he joins the Cardinals, who are an atrocious franchise. And, of course, three years later, he's got him in the Super Bowl, and he played great in that game. 
And either him or Larry Fitzgerald would have been the MVP. I remember that, what, 70 or 80-yard touchdown with two minutes left pass he threw to Larry Fitzgerald. I hate to steal That was game. terrifying. That was terrifying to watch. I was like, my heart dropped in my stomach watching that happen. Well, the thing is this, though, I remember turning to my son and thinking, ah, they left two minutes left, though. So yeah. that was the only problem there. You know, maybe you should have taken a knee on the one, and then they could have taken a knee three times, ran the clock down, and scored a touchdown. But in a shortened NFL career, 32,000 yards, 208 touchdowns, 128 interceptions, four-time Pro Bowler named an All-Pro twice, was NFL MVP twice, Super Bowl MVP once, <coughs> and I think he still holds a few Super Bowl passing records too. So his story is as great as any of them. Well, yeah, and look at his playoff production. He made this play. He made the playoffs only five years in his career, but in three of those seasons, he finished the playoffs with a passer rating of 100 or better. And in that 2008-2009 playoff run, over a thousand passing yards in the four games it took them to get to the Super Bowl because they were a wild card team that year, I believe. So they didn't have a great regular season record, if I recall correctly. And then they had 11 touchdowns, only three interceptions in the playoffs for Kurt Warner that year. You think about these guys. Maybe you should take a look at some of these guys who are winning championships in other leagues because, I mean, hey, we're talking about Warren Moon winning the Grey Cup, Kurt Warner winning in a couple different places. These quarterbacks can play. You just have to find them and be able to give them a chance. Well, I think the year after Kurt Warner won the European League or the NFL Europe Championship, I think John Kitna did. And Kitna went on to have a solid NFL career. Yes, yeah, so I'm telling you, these guys, find guys that are just winners. Play, pick winners, and you know what? If they're undrafted free agents, you don't have to pay them very much. So bring them in, test them out, kick the tires on them, and see how they do. All right, your number one better be the same as mine, because to me, this is an easy one. Go ahead. It's got to be the night train, right? Exactly. I'm proud of you. You've learned a lot over the last year. <laughs> hey, I always respected night train. Well, I mean, this is the guy that, as we said, as a rookie – yeah, you know, 14 interceptions. That's in a 12-game season. That's a record that even though they're going to go to 17 games, I don't think any rookie will ever touch. No, I don't think so either. This is probably one of the most untouchable records in NFL history. I mean, 14 interceptions in a 12-game rookie season is unheard of. And he returned two of those for touchdowns. He had a safety as well. This guy was doing everything as a rookie. And like I said, they're going to 17-game seasons, and no one's going to come close to it. No, I, I think this, I think just by stats alone, you would have to say he's the greatest corner that ever lived. For my money, out of all the guys I've ever seen, I think Mel Blunt was. I haven't seen enough night train lane because you can't see full games, so you're just seeing highlights, and I don't want to judge him against somebody else just off of these highlights. But everybody talks about Deion Sanders. Deion never put up numbers like that. Well, Night Train, he could hit guys back then. Night Train's known as one of the, like, if you, of course, you're watching highlights, so like you said, you're only seeing the good stuff, but Night Train's known for hitting guys. That's why he has that nickname. I mean, he's the Night Train. He's going to knock you out if you come across the middle of that field. All right, guys that just missed my list, Larry Little. I, I actually thought he was a bigger deal than Jim Langer. I thought Larry Little was a stud. Um, Wes Welker because I think he pretty much came out of nowhere. Nobody expected that. Rod Smith, to me, from the Broncos is another one. Yeah, no, I totally agree with Rod. I had Rod Smith down here, too. I was looking at that. Uh, Donnie Shell, you mentioned. I didn't pick Cliff Harris, but I had Cliff Harris down here potentially as well. Um, yeah. Bill I, I think you brought this nail up a couple times. You, you brought Bacon? Bill Wills, great defensive tackle. Coy Bacon was a great defensive end. I mean, Coy Bacon's problem was he was kind of poisoned in locker rooms. 
Um, I have that on a pretty good source that played in the 1977 Bengals, but Koi Bacon wasn't big on practicing, but Koi Bacon was so good that the Bengals would overlook that. And, you know, it is what it is. But Bill Wills is the guy I like, too. Because the thing about Wills yeah. is that's a defensive tackle. I think he only weighed like 200 pounds. How about Joe Jacoby? I don't Joe, remember. Joe Jacoby, too. I like Joe Jacoby. Yeah, it's right from the Hogs. I had it down, too. I, he's not in the Hall of Fame yet, which is something I kind of I can't expect he would get in, but they're making him wait a little while. Well, and, and there's a lot of cornerbacks. I mean, another one that uh, you probably didn't even consider was Emmett Thomas. I actually do have him down. I have about 30 names here, Mike. I've got a lot okay. of names here, but Never I did. I didn't pick him. I wasn't going to pick him in the top 10, I don't think. Yeah, because he had like 58 picks or close to 60 interceptions in his career. And, you know, he was also an NFL coach with Joe Gibbs, I think, for all those Super Bowls. All right, well, how about I give you a defensive back that maybe you didn't consider? What about a guy like Cornell Green? He's not in the Hall of Fame. He played for Dallas for a little while. Why would you time, consider actually. Cornell Green for the top 10? Not for the top 10. I wasn't saying for the top 10, but oh. I was just saying for like missed, just missed, like top, maybe top 20 or so. I didn't miss anybody, buddy. All right. I would never, of course, you didn't like. I would never expect you to miss anybody. What? Cornell Green. Tell me about Cornell Green, then. Uh, you think I know a lot about Cornell Green? All I know is that he had 34 career interceptions. He did have a seven-interception season, three-time first-team All-Pro. Yeah, he was a great player. The interesting part was he was probably considered a better basketball player because I think he played at Utah really? State. He was an All-American basketball player, I think, a couple times in the early 60s. Six three two oh eight. He could be a guard. He could play. He could have played in the NBA. Well, hell, he, might, he might have been a small forward back then, but he That's took true. Utah State to the NCAA tournament. I think in the early sixties, and they were like a top ten team when he played there. And you know, I don't even know if he played college football. I can't remember, but I don't think he did. And he just got a tryout with the Cowboys. I mean, it would make sense. I mean, we've seen. Guys, we talked about Gates. Antonio Gates is almost well more in college than playing football at Kent State. Yeah, because he got selected by the Chicago Zephyrs in the fifth round of the 1962 NBA draft. And he he really, I'm pretty sure the Cowboys gave him like a $1,000. And if you remember, the Cowboys at this time had brought in guys like Bob Hayes. Uh, hell, they actually, Steve Risley, who played for IU. They actually were interested in Risley coming in and trying out as a tight end in the early 80s after he graduated from IU after he won the national championship. Really? Did he ever get a tryout? No, he didn't go because Risley's a girl. He's afraid to play football. He just played basketball. And oh, I know Risley. Hey, Steve. You know, Steve, I brought it up in your defense, and then Sam took it a different way where I had to attack you. I apologize. <laughs> But if you remember, Gil what, what, Brandt, what am I getting blamed for this? Gil Brandt was huge on picking guys from other sports and bringing them in. Because I think he also, like in 1984-85, after Carl Lewis won the four Olympic gold medals, which tied Jesse Owens' record. Actually, I, I think he tried to bring Carl Lewis in. I think he might have even drafted Carl Lewis in like the 11th or 12th round of the NFL draft. <laughs> 
hey, you know what? Sometimes it takes a little bit of innovation. You've got, well, guys, like, hey, you've got guys like a Bob Hayes who comes in and hits like that. You laugh, but at the same time, Willie Galt, who was a great you know sprinter at the same time, went in and did some really good things for the Chicago Bears. It was just Carl Lewis was a little soft and didn't want to play football. But he did I'm say, not down that. you got plenty of guys who are track backgrounds or went and played track at some local came in and played well. Let's see, Carl Lewis. Mean, talk about Bob Pace. Bob Pace is probably the fastest player in NFL history. Oh, I don't know if he's the fastest, but he's up there. But Carl Lewis, you know, thought he was a singer, though. <laughs> it, it didn't work out too good. Hold on. I, I got something for you. Hold on. Yeah. So, okay. Hold on. We got to share this. This is Carl Lewis singing a national anthem at an NBA game. It's good stuff. But he really, he thought he was a singer. I think he might have even put out an album at one point. So, just let's see. Some things haven't changed. There's still a lot of athletes who think they're singers right now. They're really. Yeah, they're really not. So, here we go. Carl Lewis tries to sing the national anthem. Not really the NBA. It's a Nets game. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear the sound on my end, but I'm gonna I'm gonna play the video on my end too, so I can hear it. It gets worse, if I remember right. What am I listening to, Mike? Did you hear him? Yeah, I get. I've got the video playing on my end over here. I'm listening to like the voice cracking and all this kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> if I'm Jordan sitting there, I'm gonna go over, walk over, take the mic, and bop him upside the head for this. They don't look too impressed. <laughs> they laughing at him. <laughs> yeah. I've been laughing too. There's nothing else you can do to respond to that. You can't take it too seriously. No, you can't. But he really thought he was a singer. I think there's even a Carl Lewis album out there. Uh, you know what? I wouldn't be shocked. But it could outrun everybody. Any NFL news you want to discuss, Sam? No, I think we've got. I mean, there's not really a lot coming out right now unless there are going to be some surprise cuts or surprise trades we haven't seen yet. Supposedly, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's got to happen before the NFL draft, but we're still, still waiting on the first shoe to drop. 
Yeah. Well, Pac-Man Jones got arrested. That's about all I know. Um, did you hear? Uh, do you think there's any way J.J. Watt's dumb enough to be a Cleveland Brown? I swear, if he goes to Cleveland, the only, the only thing that could be good about Cleveland is that you get to play alongside Miles Garrett, which means you get to play against no double teams whatsoever. It's going to be single coverage every single time. And that's the only thing positive about Cleveland. And I think he, I don't think he's that dumb. I don't think he's going to go to Cleveland. Well, how about this? Uh, it's news to me because the Carolina Panthers have released two-time Pro Bowl defensive tackle Kawan Short also, which oh, yeah. he's 32 years old. He was set to count $20.8 against this year's cap. But by releasing him, they've created $8.6 in cap space. I would think that's a guy people are going to go after. And, you know, Taylor Moton all, or Moton also will be gone. But yeah, Moton's going to be huge. Moton's one of the better right tackles in the NFL, probably one of the top 10 right tackles in like this point. So you're going to definitely see guys go after him. But Kwan Shore, he's played five games in the past two years. I know he was a Pro Bowler a couple times in the mid-2010s, but really he, he, he kind of in the middle of the, middle of the decade. Hasn't but done but if he's a guy you can they, get cheap, he's worth a shot. Oh, yeah. If you can get him for, for 3 or $4 million, I think some team like the Buffalo Bills will go after someone like that. I think almost any team will go after someone like that with that kind of history. All right, Sam. Anything else before we wrap it up? Nope. I think we covered just about everything. All right, guys, we will be back tomorrow at 1 o'clock Eastern time to talk a little NFL. Make sure you check out PassPurity.Direct right now. If you go to PassPurity.Direct, you can get a two-month supply for the price of one month, which is $75. It basically is organic. You stick it under your tongue. It dissolves and then time releases over the next 12 hours. Make sure you check out PassPurity at PassPurity.Direct. You can follow Sam Teets at SamTeets33. You can follow me at Grilling Truth tonight. We will have a look back on the old-time boxing show with myself and boxing historian Christopher Shelton at the Evander Holyfield-George Foreman heavyweight title fight from 1991. So make sure you check us out tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern. So for now, for Sam Teets, I'm Mike Goodpaster. You've been watching and listening to The Grueling Truth, where the legends speak.